yet. Genesis 1 is where we will start. But as you're turning there, I wanted to uh, tell you a story that I had heard several years ago and then forgotten about and came back across this week. About 300 miles southwest of Anchorage, Alaska, there's a place called Katmai National Park in Alaska. This, this park and, and preserve area encompass about 4 million acres. It's huge. Now, that's, that's somewhere between the size of Connecticut and, and New Jersey. It's just massive. And aside from Mount Katmai and several other active volcanoes in the park, the park is known for this incredible quantity of protected Alaskan brown bears that reside there. These, these bears, because of the, the efforts that have been taken, are, are uniquely unafraid of humans. So they're very friendly, and, and they don't tend to be scared, and they're photographed a great deal uh, every year. Now, I don't know if you've heard this story, but for 13 summers, there was a man named Timothy Treadwell. For 13 summers, he would go and he would spend his summers in the park studying and actually dwelling up close and personal with the bears there. We have a picture. That's, that's Timothy uh, and there, there are times where he's touched the bears, he's, he's been up close to them. And he had this mission to protect the bears that had come uh, be, really because of his own survival. He had overdosed on heroin, and after his own recovery, he just felt pulled to go and make a difference in this area. Now, Treadwell was, like I said, very personal. He would at times touch them, he would play with the cubs, you can find these videos. And, and though many of the park officials would see Tim and they would tell him, like, you're breaking the natural barriers, the rules to maintain safety, you shouldn't be doing this, he considered himself to safely be studying them. So after 13 summers, listen, this is crazy, he had over 100 hours of video footage of the bears. Now, in 2003, Tim and his girlfriend Amy went back to the park again, and they set up their campsite near the salmon stream where the grizzlies would feed really often. And he stayed later in the year than, normal, than his normal schedule had allowed him. And he began to see these new bears. And, and it's tragic. After 13 summers, Treadwell and his girlfriend were attacked and, and mostly fully devoured by a 28-year-old brown bear. They were killed. And a video camera was recovered at the site with, with only their voices. The, the documentary that tells the story is Grizzly Man. You, you may have heard of it or seen it. But Treadwell's story, I, I think, this tragic story, tells a vivid picture of something that, that many scientists have argued for decades about animals. See, certain animals were never meant to be domesticated, right? They were never meant to be tamed. And, you know, in the church for, for centuries, we've had this thing, the Apostles' Creed, right? This, this prayer, this statement of faith, this declaration. And within this statement of faith, it's been used within the, the Christian church that it professes a faith in the right belief about the nature of who God is. And, and the Apostles' Creed tells us to our, our belief in God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, this trinity existence of, of who God is. And for centuries, this creed has been used kind of as a guard or measuring stick. If you believe this, then you are truly a Christian. You are truly someone who has the essentials of faith down. Now, here's the thing. What I want to suggest today, though, is that it may just be possible that the church, capital C Church, not just our church, the church, ha have domesticated the nature of God in a way that was never meant to be domesticated. Like Timothy Treadwell, I think we've set up camp in the middle of God's being, thinking it was safe for us. And all the while, we're missing just how dangerous the ground we stand on really is. If you've read C.S. Lewis, the great writer, theologian, he wrote a series of children's books called The Chronicles of Narnia. And then in, in Narnia, the great lion, Aslan, represents 
God and, and what Lewis understood God to be like. And one of the children in the story nervously asks a character who's familiar with the lion. He looks at the, the character in the story and he says, is the, is the lion safe? Is he quite safe? I, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion, as many of us would. And this character responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. And then he follows up and he says, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And I've always loved that line. Many of you have heard me preach that quote before. But, but see, we are in the middle, and we will be until almost Christmas, so hang in there, in a series that we've called Reset. And we're exploring the early church in the book of Acts and walking kind of chapter by chapter in, in, into what it meant for the disciples who became the church, who led this movement of the church to have their entire uh, being, their entire way of seeing the world reset as they began to live into what it meant to be the Jesus Movement. And so the past couple of weeks, we've talked about their purpose, and we've talked about their calling, the mission that Jesus sent them on. And we've considered the fact that they were told by Jesus as he ascended to heaven to become the king, that they were told to wait until they received power, right? Everybody say power. You're awake, right? You're with me? All the way. We're close to lunch. But wait, wait. he said, you're going to get power, and then you will be my witnesses to all the world of this kingdom of which I reign. He says, I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and just witness to the fact that I am king in this world. Now, to me, this series that we're in, Reset, feels so relevant because every one of us is continuing to face change. We're continuing school to navigate day by day, week by week, what the reset of our world looks like as things like school reopenings and church gatherings and family connections and job loss shift and, and, and all economic perils and all this stuff. We're, we are in many ways facing a reset, and so I think it's so critical that we understand what it means to be the church in a world that is shifting what it means to reset, and I think it's even more important that we remember specifically who God is. Who is God to you? That we would understand, that we would kind of refresh or renew or maybe come for the first time to understand who the Holy Spirit is. And that's, that's where I want to focus today. Today I want to tell you the stories of the Holy Spirit. Beck said, this is a long song, you better preach fast. I said, it's the Holy Spirit, so there's no fast preaching, right? That's so we're going to get to it. We're going to get to Acts, I promise. But to get there, I need to tell you a few Bible stories. If you want to keep up, just flip fast. I've got verses on the screen. You can write notes. I encourage you to go back and study it this week. We're just going to have a Bible study today, okay? You don't really have a choice, so say okay. All right, so here's what we do. Genesis 1. Genesis 1, verse 1. We're going to start at the very beginning, the very start. Here's what it says in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you were studying this in the Apostles' Creed, you would say, that's God the Father. God the Father was the creator. Verse 2 says, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God, that's the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now here's where we miss this. We've got God the Father creating. We've got God the Spirit hovering. When we go to the book of John, you don't have to turn there, John starts his book by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word to John is Jesus. And so maybe you've missed this growing up in the church, but even in Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3, we see God the Father creating, God the Spirit hovering, and God speaks the Word, and the Word is Jesus. From the very start of Scripture, we have the Trinitarian existence of God. And we grew up knowing, God, knowing that God created, that He created in seven days, that He created humans in, uniquely. 
But if, see, if we were to keep reading Genesis, we would find more to this story. We would find the story of humanity being created as God's treasured creation, intersecting and reflecting God's image in our development. See, God creates humanity, and it tells us in Genesis that he breathes. He breathes his spirit. The word for breath there is ruach. Everybody say ruach. You're learning Hebrew today. Stay with me. It's the word wind that the Spirit of God breathed into his creation. The image of God happens as God creates humans. Now, skip ahead to Genesis 4. So we're in Genesis 4, and after the sins of Adam and Eve, and after the passed-on sin to their son Cain, killing his brother Abel. Everybody remember that? That was the worst sibling fight we've ever seen. We find these three seemingly random verses in Genesis 4 telling us about how God gave Adam and Eve new children, new, inherit, new ancestors, new inheritors of their family name. Out of Adam and Eve's, now watch this, great-great-great-great-grandson, Lamech, we're told of his two wives, Ada and Zillah. Some of you are going to be like, what the heck does this have to do with anything? Hang with me. Look at verse 20 of Genesis 4. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. This was the agricultural line of civilization. This was Jabal, the farmer, right? Verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played stringed instruments and pipes. We would have had him in the band because Jabal was the hardworking farmer. Jubal was the artist. Are you with me? He was the creative. Then we had Zillah, who also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. So check this out, because when we look at Genesis 4, as humanity develops, as the, the line of Adam and Eve is being passed on into humanity, civilization is emerging. We see a line of those who are, are, are farmers, agriculturally, tents and livestock. We see Jubal, who is the creative pocket of our world. We see Tubal-Cain, who creates bronze and iron tools, the industrial pocket. By the way, these are still the pockets of our civilization. This is God telling a story of humanity emerging, civilization developing, and they're reflected, they're restored in the image of God even after the sins of Adam and Eve, even after the sins of Cain and Abel. He's developing humanity. We are created to create, to create life from the ground, farmers. That's an act of God, to create art and poetry and, and imagination and to create tools and industrial labor and what, what that looks like. That's all reflecting the image of God, the spirit of, spirit of God. Now look at verse 26. It says, after all these civilizations began to develop, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. It's a little phrase. You need to circle that. You need to underline that. So catch this. God's spirit hovers over the water. It breathes into humanity at creation. And now, as civilization emerges, it's the spirit that extends the creativity to create and forms a unified people calling on the name of God. But, and this is so critical, the unity of humanity will not last. Our unity calling on the name of God will not last. Look at Genesis 11. I'm telling you, we're going to go through the Bible today. You ready? Genesis 11, verse 1 says this. Now, the whole world had one language, in a common speech. Can you imagine? Wouldn't that be nice? Some of you, I can't even understand you when you talk. Now we put a mask on your face and all we get is mumbles from each other, right? But the whole world had one language and a common speech. This is the unity that existed in Genesis 4. They began to call on the name of God. The image of God reflected in diversity, agricultural, industrial, creative, diverse yet unified in worship. But it all turns in this popular Sunday school story of the Tower of Babel. 
This whole world, humanity gathered across their culture, says to each other, let's build a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. You remember this story if you grew up in church? Let's build a tower that reaches to the heavens. And then they say, so that we may make a name for ourselves. So humanity that was calling on the name of the Lord now says, let's call on our name. Let's make a tower that everybody knows us about. And the writer of Genesis 11 tells us that the Lord came down to see the city and to see the tower. And look at verse 6 of Genesis 11. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, now check this out. Let us go down. Who is us? Is God schizophrenic? It's the Trinity. It's the existence of the Trinity. Let us go down and watch what God says and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. See, the unity of praise, calling on the name of the Lord, has turned to the unity of the pursuit of power. And God says they've rejected my image, and thus they have to be confused. They have to be scattered because they're not understanding what they were created to do. Look at verse 8. The Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. Now, before we move out of Genesis, catch the movement here. God breathes his spirit into humans, the ruach, the wind. He breathes that into humanity. He says, I've uniquely gifted you with this creative nature to create, whether it's farming or industrial or art, whatever it is, you are created to create, but this is rejected when humanity says, well, if we can create, we should tell people we can create, and they should see how great we are. We're the greatest ever. And God says in that rejection, he has to confuse and divide humanity. So since we're talking about the Spirit of the Lord, let's trace some of its movement in the Old Testament. I would say this first about God's Holy Spirit. God's Spirit was given in the Old Testament to unique individuals or in unique circumstances and moments for the sake of leading his people toward righteousness. So just for example, and you don't have to turn there, in Numbers 11, God tells Moses after Moses has said, the work is too great, you've given me too much. I can't do it. Numbers, Numbers 11, God says, I'll come down and speak with you there, Moses, and I will take some of the power of the Spirit that is on you, and I will put it on them. He says, call all your leaders together, and I'll take some of the Spirit and put it on them. So understand this. In the Old Testament, God gifted individuals with the Spirit, like Moses, like David. And then he would pour out pieces of the Spirit. Moses, you can have a little bit of this, but I'm going to give it to other people. So understand, this was a unique thing that happened. It was the, the Spirit of God was not given or available to everyone. In a divided humanity, God used uniquely called people to embody the power of, of his Spirit and lead his people toward his plans. We see this in Joshua. We see this in King David. And eventually, God grows tired. If you were to trace the Old Testament, God grows tired of Israel and of Judah and their consistent rejection of his will. And finally, the Holy Spirit is taken from God's people. And God says, you'll have no more spirit-empowered leaders, no more spirit-guided work. And the Israelites face the course of exile, and they would face that spiritless environment until the Messiah would come in the power of God's spirit. Does this make sense? Are you tracking with me? This is why Isaiah 11, Isaiah 11, when, God pro when Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah, he says, the spirit of the Lord. Guess what the word is there for spirit? Come on, Hebrew. Ruach, it's the wind. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Who? The Messiah. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. God says, I will give my Messiah the spirit. In Isaiah 61, which by the way is the very first scripture Jesus quotes in the book of Luke. Isaiah 61 verse 1, the prophecy of the Messiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me. 
And so the Israelites, while they had seen uniquely gifted individuals with the Spirit now in exile, are waiting and hoping that the Messiah, who would embody the Spirit once again, would come to them because the Messiah would uniquely be indwelt by the Holy Spirit to call and restore God's people and to bless the nations. And watch, Jesus identified himself as this Messiah. Now, we can finally go back to Acts. Okay? You with me? Acts chapter 2. We're going to be there for about a second. Okay. Jesus' disciples in Acts 2, they're gathered in Jerusalem. They're waiting on the power that Jesus had promised. They didn't really know what it looked like, but they knew he had left them and he had told them, I'm going to send you to the world, but you're going to wait for the power to come. You're going to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then and only then would they be able to become his witnesses. So look at Acts 2, verse 1. Here's what it says. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now, before I jump into the rest of Acts, we got to tell you more about Pentecost, because Pentecost has this really crazy, cool history. We think of Pentecost as Holy Spirit Day, right? That's If you grew up in the Christian church, Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit comes, and that, that's great. But you'll see why when we go back to Acts. But actually, Pentecost started as a Jewish celebration long before Jesus. See, Pentecost for the Jewish people in Jerusalem on this day in Acts 2 was actually something called the Feast of Weeks. And what it was, this was a time when thousands of people from different countries and different cultures would come to Jerusalem. This is how you might think about this. This is like Strawberry Festival combined with the Super Bowl. Are you with me? This is like the Feast of Weeks. This is what's going on here. Here's what the festival was about. The Israelites for centuries celebrated the Passover as the night that they were set free from slavery in Egypt. This was their very first feast. Then, from Passover, they would count seven weeks, seven weeks of seven days, when they would come to Mount Horeb with Moses, where he would go up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. Everybody remember Charlton Heston? Prince of Egypt, maybe? that We'll talk generations, okay? He gets the Ten Commandments, God's law for his people. And 50 days, that happened 50 days after their liberation from their slavery in Egypt, that they were given the sign of God's covenant love from God himself on the mountain. So at Pentecost, right, the Feast of Weeks, the Jews in the first century would have celebrated God giving them the law. But not only this, the Feast of Weeks was loaded with meaning. The Feast of Weeks was also called the Feast of First Fruits. Everybody say First Fruits. And it would have fallen directly in line with the harvesting of the wheat. Some of you are like, this is so boring. Hang with me. It's going to pay off. But there's one more part of this story that the Israelites never forgot. See, while Moses was on the mountain, does anybody remember what the Israelites were doing while he was on the mountain? They were partying with the golden calf. They were rejecting God once again. Exodus 32 tells us that the people created idols of gold to worship. Moses, their leader, was gone. And so their worship, just as it happened at Babel, turned from Yahweh, their God, to their own gods. And when Moses comes down from the mountain, God is displeased. And check this out, 3,000 Israelites die at the hand of the Lord. That's a bad day of partying, just saying. So multiple threads here. For the Jewish people entering Jerusalem during the festival of Pentecost in Acts 2, they were remembering the celebration of God himself revealing himself to their ancestors at Mount Horeb. They would also celebrate the harvest, the gathering of wheat that would sustain their lives. And underneath those stories would be that ominous threat, the death of 3,000. A harvest, God's revelation, and the immense remembrance that you were not to worship false gods. Okay, let's go to Acts and let's get into this. Acts 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, the feast of weeks, the feast of first fruits, they were all together in one place. Now watch this. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a what? 
violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now, I love that we read this story and you all are like, mm, oh yeah, oh, okay. If you were there, you'd be so freaked out. It's tongues of fire separating, resting on you. Your house is filled with wind. This is worse than any news of any pandemic. There's something going on here. It's the bear attack. It's not safe. It's a crazy image. In verse 4, it says this, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. The word there is glossa. It means languages as the Spirit enabled them. Verse 5, now they were, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews, check this out, from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, this wind, this violent wind, the crowd came together because that's what we do when there's a tornado. We stop and take pictures because we're intelligent human beings, aren't we? A crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Aren't they Jewish? Do they really speak our language? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, and those other words I can't say. Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arab. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what the heck is going on? So guess what? This is the moment, right? This is the thing Jesus told them to wait for. There was no confusion here. There was no sense of, is this what God wanted to do? They knew it. The house was filled with wind. The tongues separated on them. They began to speak in languages that they had never spoken before. It was a display of flat-out power that enabled the apostles outside their own abilities to speak in those languages for those gathered in Jerusalem to hear the message of God. And then I love verse 13 because it says, Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. Here's what I know to be true. Those were Jewish religious people. I know that because everybody else that spoke those languages were like, this is crazy. They're speaking our language. And the Jewish religious people leaning on the wall were like, look at the drunk apostles. That's what they're saying. That's what they're saying is going on. Uh, they're, they're talking about this full-blown display of power where all these different nations are hearing the gospel, this message of salvation, and they're understanding that. And as that's happen, happening somewhere, leaning against a wall is some Jewish kid because I imagine they wouldn't have known those languages. Going, look at drunk Peter. Isn't he funny? There goes Matthew. They must have been out partying already early in the morning. So watch the response. Verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me break this down for you. Listen carefully to what I say. Verse 15. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. At least give us to eleven. Now notice that this is Peter, by the way. This is the failure. This is the guy that denied Jesus three times. And now for nations to hear, he's preaching. And he begins to frame this whole experience at Pentecost. He's, he's telling these crowds what is, what is really going on. And he, and he quotes, and I know we're reading a lot of verses, but you've got to hear this part because it's going to unpack everything. Here's what he says. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Peter starts to go Old Testament, and he quotes the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. 
Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to great darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And then watch verse 21. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yeah. You can't miss this, right? Peter quotes to this Jewish crowd wondering what the heck is taking place that this is exactly what their prophets had talked about. This is the day. Now remember our story. Israel faces the removal of God's spirit from their leaders as he leads them into exile where they will face nothing but suffering and silence until the Messiah comes. And Joel writes this prophecy, listen, right in the middle of living in a foreign country that was not his own. And he says, when the last days come, when God is ready to win back the world to his kingdom and unveil his Messiah as his king, at that point, Joel says, God's going to take his spirit and he's going to pour it out. It's not any longer just for special people. It's poured out on all his people. And Joel says, I think in Hebrew, it's going to mess you up. You're going to prophesy. You're going to dream dreams. You're going to see wonders in the sky, blood. And you're going to see all this. It's going to make, does this sound safe? Does this sound domesticated or more like the grizzly bear coming at you? See, don't miss this. No longer is the Spirit only for the Moseses, the Joshuas, the Davids. In the last days, the Holy Spirit is for all people. And Peter says this to the crowd, the critics. He says, this is what you're watching take place. And because you're watching this, by the way, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I don't have time to go through the entire rest of this chapter, but Peter preaches a sermon for about the next 17 verses. He just goes off. It's a powerful sermon. And it's being spoken in tongues, in the languages of all those people in Jerusalem gathered for the Feast of Weeks, and it's being spoken to the Jewish people as well. And at the very end of the sermon, here's what the writer Luke tells us happens after the message. Those who accepted, verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about how many? 3,000 were added to their number that day. Man, this is so loaded. Your, your spider senses, your church, I don't know if we have church senses, your church senses should be tingling, right? They should be going crazy. The beauty of this story, the complexities and the threads that God weaves together in this Pentecost event are absolutely incredible. Let me unpack a couple things for you and see what it tells us about the Holy Spirit. First, at Pentecost, the divided humanity of Babel is being reversed. This is the biblical narrative. This is what's taking place. Jesus told his disciples, he says, you're going to be witnesses to the world. Pentecost is the preview of that happening. Jesus didn't just have a good vision statement, by the way. He had the mechanism to make this happen. The Holy Spirit was the way they would reach the world. See, in this Pentecost event in Acts 2, all the division of humanity built from the pride of human endeavor was being reversed. It was being shattered. The reality was at Pentecost that the followers of Jesus realized finally it's the work of the Holy Spirit and Christ the King to restore humans back to right relationship with God. Augustine said it this way, if pr pride caused diversities of tongues, think Babel, if pride caused diversities of tongues, Christ's humility and the Spirit's power has united these diversities in one. The church now bringing together what the tower has sundered or separated. I love Augustine's language. This is in many ways the restoration of all civilizations calling on Yahweh again. That's what's taking place here. We might see it this way, and I, and I harbor this because I want you to get it. Jesus gave the mission. Pentecost proved the mission. The world Jesus wanted to reach in one moment in one city was taking place. That's how real this was. 
We could say this too. At Pentecost, a new revelation is being poured out on all people. Remember the Moses story. See, the Feast of Weeks remembered the revealing of God through his commandments to Moses. At Pentecost, we see God revealing himself in a new way to all people. The quotation from Joel is so central. Peter proclaims that the Spirit and the God Jesus has revealed is still Yahweh, but is now open and embracing to all who would come. The Spirit is for all who believe in Christ. The Spirit, the fountain of living water Jesus promised time and time again, is being poured out and the well will never dry up again. Moses got the law on the mountain. Pentecost pours the law out, the hope out. Here's the third theme that I think, and then we're going to apply this and we're going to be done. At Pentecost, a new harvest is beginning. It's a new harvest. See, finally, the, the Feast of Weeks was about harvest. It was the wheat harvest, the first fruits. But it was cloaked, and don't, this is so critical. Don't miss this. It was cloaked in the reality that they were gathering wheat on the same day that historically 3,000 Israelites had died for their own idolatry. Pentecost says no more death. Instead of idolatry confronted through the death of thousands, grace is made real at Pentecost as 3,000 are saved. That's the story, the power of the story. This is revival. This is better than any agricultural success. It's souls rescued and restored, lives brought back into the hope of Christ, and it's a soul harvest that will touch the world. So let's draw this down and see what this might say to you. I, I'm, I'm tempted to just walk away now and go, go wrestle with this for the rest of the week. Sometimes I think we need sermons that are like to be continued. You're welcome. Go struggle. Go see what it means and come back and tell us. But we're not going to do that. These stories are powerful enough, though, we could. Here, here's what I think. I, I think it matters that we understand this reset of the Holy Spirit that took place here. There are three themes, I think, three ways that you might say the Holy Spirit is absolutely not safe, but he's good. Amen? Like, the Holy Spirit is not safe. Not if you read this story, but he's good. So I, I'm going to tell you, here, here's my nice subtitle for my application. I'm getting really Baptist today, okay? So I got my nice subtitle for my application points, and then I'll tell you what I really wanted to call it. Here's, here's the, the title, Why the Holy Spirit Isn't Safe and What It Means for You. What I really wanted to say was how the Holy Spirit's going to jack you up in three short sentences, okay? Here, here's the first one. The first one is this. The Holy Spirit is all about identities being restored and divisions being ended. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is about restoring identities. John 14, Jesus tells his disciples in verse 26, he says, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Now, this word Advocate is the word parakletos. We've talked about this before. But parakletos literally means counselor, comforter. It's the Advocate. The parakletos was somebody that if you were on trial in court, they would call your parakletos in to say, Hey, I'm with this person. They're not as messed up as you think they are. It's going to be okay. Just hang in there. And they would testify on your behalf. The advocate, the paracletos, the Holy Spirit was the one who shows up and says, I know your identity has been rocked by the world. I know you've been broken down, but I'm with you and it's going to be okay. I'm going to restore things. You're grieving. You're hurting. You're wounded. You're broken. It's going to be okay. And Jesus goes on in verse 27 to say, peace, I leave with you. I don't think that's just a nice comforting statement. I think he says, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit who is peace. I'm leaving peace with you. I'm going to be gone, but the peace is going to live inside of you. Do you know why we sin? Do you know why we mismanage our lives? Do you know why we screw things up and break down relationships? Because we lose our identities. We forget who we are. We forget how much we're loved 
by God, and we need them restored. And you know how that happens? That happens through the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 11, the prophet says, I will give them a singleness of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove, I love this verse, I will remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Is that not so powerful? See, the Holy Spirit restores our identities. He brings us back to himself. He, he brings us back to ourself as God created us. The word repent, actually, if you were to translate it, literally means to turn or to return, to remember who you were, become who you were meant to be. And watch this. Think about Babel. This isn't just about your life getting better as an individual. I love the idea of our identities being restored, but it's not just about you becoming a better Christian. It's about humanity experiencing God's kingdom. It's Babel reverse. See, here's the thing that you got to get. As your identity is restored in Christ, the world's division will be ended as you live into the world. How many of you see the division in our world? Amen? Do you know what the solution is? Can I just inform you? Because we're going to talk about this several times. It's not the next politician that you think is going to save the day. It's you living fully into the identity that Christ has given you to live. That's what's going to restore our world. That's what this is all about. As our identity is restored, division will end. So church, hear this. We have a mission, a God-given scriptural mission to bring healing to the nations. Here's, your, here's one piece of your homework. Google the phrase, all nations, Bible verses, and look at how many times it says all nations. All peoples, all tribes, all tongues. And, and, and I want to tell you something, church. I love the church, but we are missing the boat when it comes to God's heart for reconciliation in our world today. And I'm not cloaking that with any political language. I, I'm holding up scripture for you saying we are missing the boat if we don't care about what reconciliation means. Babel is about division. It's about scattering. I, I believe it's where the, the separation of cultures instead of the beauty of cultures came to existence. With Pentecost, we have the gift of seeing restoration under God's hand come to reality. That's what the story is about. I, I had the opportunity the past couple weeks to, to be a part of a leadership training for high school students, about 100 high school students through the University of Charleston. And each group of students was tasked with coming up with a project. And they were, the project was, if your mayor came to you and said, fix a problem, what are you going to do? They could come up with anything. And I'm telling you, I sat on the line, and, and I listened virtually as these kids were sharing. And the very last group said, we're going to introduce a, a racial reconciliation curriculum. That when you teach history, you're going to teach racial reconciliation because it matters that much. So can I just say this to you? If all of you are okay with just moving on in the world and not acknowledging the, the sin of this stuff, it's okay. Because God's raising up a generation that's going to care about it. And I'm not talking politics. I'm talking biblical mission, biblical calling. If we are not willing to break our hearts down and say, God, show me where my privilege exists. Show me where I'm complicit. Then the God is going to raise up someone else who does because that's the story of Scripture. And if your identity is being restored, but the division of your world is not being ended, then you're missing out on having your identity restored. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Here's the second piece. Freedom, are we preaching? You guys okay? All right, freedom is given. Here's what the Holy Spirit does. Here's how he messes you up in the best way possible. Freedom is given and people are empowered. See, the word for spirit is wind. It's new breath, new life, the movement of God's work. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, anyone, it's not select few, it's not the Moseses, the Davids, the Joshuas. When anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And then he says this, now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Rules! Church! No, there's freedom. 
Are you walking in more freedom? I, I keep harping, but Peter found freedom. He was no longer a failure. He was no longer a fraud. His identity was restored, and here he stands up to proclaim hope because he's freer than he's ever been. Do you want to know if God's working in your life? You want to measure whether God's working in your life or not? How's your freedom? Are you freer than you've been in a long time? And you know what comes after freedom? It's empowerment. People who are free exercise their gifts. Insecurity goes away. You know what I notice about second graders and seventh graders? Second graders, I ask them to sing for me or do a talent show. Everybody wants to do it. Man, let's do this. I, I'm the greatest singer in the world. No, you're not. Your mom just thinks you are. You know what I noticed about seventh graders? None of them. We can't do that. See, freedom empowers us. Freedom allows us the confidence, the courage to live as God calls us. And, and friends, in our churches today, I think a lot of time we have intellectual belief, but we have people who are in slavery to their own insecurities because we think only the pastor can be the spiritual leader. Only the, the, the small group leader knows what they're doing versus the empowerment that God's spirit gives to us. Here's the final part of this. The way the Holy Spirit messes us up is that the harvest is promised and the mission is catalyzed. Let me say this one more time. See, the work of the Spirit is never just about you. It's never just about you. Revelation 22, the, 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 the writer says this, the Spirit and the bride. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit. The bride is who? Anybody know? It's the church. We're the bride of Christ. Look at how this intersects. The Holy Spirit and the church say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. See, friends, the Holy Spirit promises a harvest because God wants to draw people to himself. He wants to reach people. How many of you, just, just be honest, how many of you know someone who doesn't know Jesus? Put your hands up. This is not a hypothetical question. You know someone who doesn't know Christ. How many of you have worried for them, longed for them, wished for them, prayed for them? Can I just tell you, that's the Holy Spirit at work in your life. If it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't care about anyone. There's no way I would. I'd go pursue my own ends. I could make a lot more money. I got a good brain in my head. But the Holy Spirit catalyzes something in us that says, don't quit praying for the people around you. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep inviting. Keep responding when you're led. See, the mission of God through the Holy Spirit is catalyzed in us. Who is it that God wants to draw? How does he want to use you? Timothy Treadwell was devoured by the thing that he tried to domesticate. He held a set of beliefs about those bears that were just not true. See, friends, I want to challenge you today. Don't do the same thing with the Holy Spirit. Don't think God's work is limited by your own mindset or, or by the boxes you've put him in. His spirit, if you will surrender to it, wants to devour you in the most beautiful way possible. God's Spirit wants to consume your life, to restore your identity, and use you in the gospel of redemption. He wants to give you freedom and empower gifts in you that you've never known. And he wants to unleash you on a mission that will reach the world, starting with the people around you. But sitting in the wild, thinking you can touch the Spirit of God on Sundays without being consumed, there's no way. 
I'm going to challenge you, friends. Let the Spirit reset what's going on in your life. We're in a time where everybody's worried about themselves. Everybody's worried about what it means for them in the middle of this pandemic or for their kids going to school. For what it, uh, oh, we got all this stuff that we're consumed with. And I want to say to you, what would the Spirit came if that wind came in here and said, stop looking at yourself and look at the mission that I've given you right now. Look at the thing that I've given you to do, to be faithful to right now. I'm going to have the band come. And I want to ask you these questions as they as they come, and I want you to think about this. What is the Spirit saying to you today? And that's not some kind of weird spiritual ethereal language. That's just me saying, what is God's Spirit saying to you? I know some of you maybe have been in churches, or you grew up in churches where it's like, well, they get a little wacky. They get a little out there when it talks about the Holy Spirit. Like, well, I don't really understand. Can I just say to you, Scripture says you have the Spirit of God in you right now. Amen? Like, you have the Spirit of God, if you follow Christ, living in you right now. Now, I don't know about you, but my spirit tells me stuff. Like, my own spirit tells me stuff. Like, hey, you need a Whopper right now. <laughs> Amen? Like, you need tacos right now. Go get that thing. You need sleep. Go take a nap. I know it's only one in the afternoon, but my spirit is very clear about that stuff. Amen? Are you with me? Here's what I want. I want us to start to get super clear about what the Holy Spirit says to us. I want us to start to get even more and more clear when the Holy Spirit says, I just want you praying for that person every day for the next month. I don't want you to quit on that. You raised your hand. You had somebody that you know that doesn't know Jesus, and, and really, I want you to just pray for them. And then, guess what? In the next course of that month, I may put you in a place where you have a coffee with them, and you get to share something with them. You don't have to be a theological expert. You just have to be a faithful person who loves Jesus and trusts his spirit. Where is it? Where is it that you need your identity restored? Where is it that you need more freedom? Where is it that you need more empowerment? Where do you need to work for unity that you haven't been working for unity? Where do you need to catalyze the mission? And I'm giving you a really practical chance to respond because here's, here's what I would typically do non-pandemic Sundays. I'd give you a note card and I'd have you write those things down so that you'd name them. And I'd have you bring them up and put them on the altar. So we're going to do it a little differently, okay? I'm going to put my phone number up and I'd love as you pray text. Where's God calling you? Who's God calling you to pray for? Because it's not, not me. I'm not going to judge you. You don't get a grade. Do you know what I'm going to do? What is the Spirit saying to me? I'm going to pray for you this week. I'm going to pray for those names. I'm going to pray for the people that you're saying, I think God wants to do something in their life. I'm going to lift you up as you say, I need my identity reshaped for this. I'm going to lift you up as you say, I need to learn a lot more about this conversation of race that is sweeping across our country because I've made it political and it's biblical. Whatever it is, text it. If you're not comfortable texting me, text someone else that you trust and say, church is weird, the Holy Spirit's messing me up, and I'm going to text you because I want you praying for me this week. Whatever it is, let's respond to what the Spirit of God says. Let's stand and pray together.